the National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Alaska has 17 units in the national park system within its boundaries. All told, there's more than 100 million acres of national park lands in that state. This is Kurt Rappenchuk, your host at National Parks Traveler. If you've never had the chance to go visit a national park unit in Alaska, in the coming podcast, we're going to make sure you want to go to one. I had the great opportunity um, a decade or so ago to travel with my wife to Glacier Bay National Park and Preserve, where we spent a week um, sea kayaking and hiking in the bay and on the lands. And it's just an incredible experience. It's nothing that you can imagine here in the lower 48 coterminous states. Contributing editor Kim O'Connell recently had the chance to visit Alaska with her family for uh, about a week or so, and um, she had an incredible time up there. And it was a vacation, but we're going to press her into working by talking about it, and I'm sure she's going to write some stories. We'll be right back in a minute with Kim to discuss her trip to Alaska. Interior Federal Credit Union's rates have jumped again. Check out their new certificate rates at interiorfcu.org. Maximize your money for the future with terms from 6 to 60 months and a minimum opening deposit of just $500. Bump-up certificates are also available to increase your rate one time during the certificate's term. Ready to start saving? Apply at interiorfcu.org. We are park stewards to ensure our most wild and historic places remain for generations to come. To safeguard our preferred arena for adventure, reflection, and inspiration. We donate 4% of our proceeds, that's revenues, not profits, to support America's most wild and historic places. We are Wild Tribute, apparel for the parks. Find out more at wildtribute.com. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Hi, Kim. Great to have you back in the lower 48. Hi, Kurt. Thanks for having me. I was happy to get back home. You know how it is after a long vacation, even the best vacations are great, but you always want to go home. So I was happy to get back. Well, how, how long was it? It was 10 days, all told, in yeah. Alaska. Yeah. No, that, I mean, aside from having to fly there and fly home, that sounds like an incredible trip. It, it really was. Um, you know, when you hear about a place for a long time, whatever that place might be for you or somebody listening, like you can build it up in your mind. And then when you actually see it, like you just want it to live up to the hype that you created in your mind. And having gone to many national parks, and I've actually seen most of the U.S. states. Alaska was my 49th out of 50 states I've visited. And it is, in fact, the 49th state of the union. I had sort of built it up in my mind as a really amazing place. And I was hoping it lived up to the hype. And I have to say, it still exceeded my expectations of Alaska is as stunning and amazing and unusual and beautiful as they say, and then some. And I really think that if anyone can find a way to get there, it's truly worth it. It's just such a, a vast state. 
it's incredibly large, and the park units there have such a diversity. I mean, you know, Wrangell St. Elias, I think, is the largest one at 13.2 million acres up there. And you can go from, you know, rivers of ice at the, the top all the way down to the coast. And that's just one park. I mean, which parks did you visit? Well, that's exactly right. So we flew in and out of Anchorage because that's, you know, the easiest way to do it. And so the first part of our trip, you know, we rented a car. We drove down to Seward on the Kenai Peninsula along Resurrection Bay, where Kenai Fjords National Park is. And so that gave us kind of the more coastal, water-based uh, park experience and natural experience where we we took a nature cruise. We did get to see some glaciers. It was kind of more of a a water-based or ice-based kind of uh, national park experience. And so that gave us one view, one small view of what the Alaska park system has to offer. And then after that, after a few days, we drove north up to Denali National Park and Preserve. And of course, then we were up in the mountains with the, the Tega forests and the pine trees and these you know, really incredibly um, impressive mountain ranges, and then, of course, Mount Denali itself, which is just, you have to see it to believe it, just how incredible this mountain is. So we felt like even though we only saw those two national parks and a lot of just, you know, open land in between, just driving between the two of them and Anchorage, we at least got a, a little bit of a sense of the, you know, sort of the, the breadth of what the national parks in Alaska have to offer. It was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I believe you you had mentioned um, that you had gone on a a, um, a wildlife cruise of sorts at, at Kenai Fjords, and you know when my wife and I were in Glacier Bay, we did the same thing. We took the the concessionaire, um, I think it was a catamaran, from Gustavus all the way sixty two miles up the bay, and just the the immensity of wildlife. You, you can't imagine it living in the lower 48s. And if you've, if you've never gotten out of your home state, I mean, what, what was it like for you? Oh, it was wonderful. So yes, technically the boat cruise that we took on Resurrection Bay, I don't think it was really affiliated with the national park, but as you may know, um, the Kenai Fjords does have a visitor center in downtown Seward, which is where the boat disembarked from. And so they all kind of work together to promote each other. So, you know, the visitor center talks about the boat trips that you can take along the bay. And of course, then also talks about getting up into the national park. And we did get to see from the boat some of the national park and, and some of the glaciers that are, you know, preserved in the national park. So this boat cruise was just a four-hour tour, a four-hour tour down beautiful Resurrection Bay. And in that four hours, not only were we surrounded by these fjords, which are these kind of, you know, U-shaped valleys that are carved by glaciers. Um, we got to see glaciers and snow-capped mountains. And, and then, but we also saw this incredible wildlife. And the most amazing to me, you know, living in um, urban Virginia, was humpback whales. We saw two humpback whales who were breaching out of the water with their beautiful tails and, and you know, blowing, you know, the, the through their blowholes and, and people were scrambling for pictures. And it, you know, to see a whales in the wild, such large creatures in the wild, it's just so amazing to see that this wildness still exists, that these creatures live wild and free in, in these oceans. And so it's really magical to see it. We also saw an otter just kind of floating along on his back, happy as can be. Um, 
We saw lots of puffins just hanging out in the water and along the kind of rocky edges of some of the lower parts of the of the mountains and the rocky areas as we would go past seals and sea lions and lots of birds. And it was really well worth it. I mean, you know, I, I'm not going to name names, but I've taken other, you know, sort of nature tours where like you're lucky if you see a couple of things and get a couple of cute pictures. But this was just the abundance of wildlife that we could see on one four hour trip was really special, especially for my kids. I brought a, my teenager and my preteen and it, you know, you have kids like it's hard to impress teenagers. They think they've seen it all. They know everything. And, you know, they, the, they feel like the world is at their oyster, their oyster. And so it was really cool for me as a mom to see my kids kind of eyes just get saucer like and, and be so amazed at the beauty too. You know, their teenagers act kind of jaded and they were not, they were so sort of, you know, um, honestly blown away by the scenery as well. And so that made it really fun for me too. They had so much fun. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm I'm not a dedicated birder. Um, I, I can tell LG, LGBs, which are little gray birds, and, um, yes. <laughs> you know, some of the more obvious bald eagles, those are easier to spot. But, you know, on our trip to Glacier Bay, I mean, just in that one-day cruise, I mean, I saw more species of birds than I think I've ever seen in my life. It's just amazing. It's just such a, a wonderful sanctuary and... Uh, yeah, just incredible. We saw bald eagles too. And again, like, you know, not everyone gets to see bald eagles that often. And they're doing well as a species, I think, overall these days. But it's just not the most common bird to see flying by your house. So to see bald eagles flying, you know, over this incredible landscape is still very stirring. Uh, we saw lots of seagulls. I could recognize those. We saw lots of seagulls. But between the puffins and and the eagles, it was pretty amazing. And then in the kind of more wooded areas, we saw some some stellar jays, you know, different birds than what we see on the East Coast. So that was exciting for me, too. Sure, sure. Did you see any um, um, American oyster catchers? So I wouldn't even know what that is, Kurt. <laughs> they, they got this long orange beak. They're hard to miss. Okay, then I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure some dedicated birders on that boat cruise or on the trails that we were with might have spotted those, but I don't think well, we saw them. I, I think you told me you're going down to Cape Hatteras National Seashore later this yes. summer, and, and I think they have them down there. So, so keep an eye out along the shoreline. So there's still hope for me this summer. Okay, there is. There is. You can add, add to your list. Um, did you get on shore at Kenai Fjords? Yes. So we did. Um, so what's really what I found very interesting about the two national parks that we visited. And I'm guessing that this is probably true for most of the national parks in Alaska. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that these parks have intentionally limited where people can go, you know, easily. And so these are not like some of the parks I've been to in the lower 48, where there's a big park road that circumvents the whole national park and that the whole park is crisscrossed by trails. These national parks are preserved for wilderness. So the wilderness quality is the number one element that you encounter. And so that both the national parks I visited had sort of limited areas where people could go um, easily. I think you can apply for backcountry permits and camp and things like that. So at uh, Kenai Fjords, we went and hiked to the Exit Glacier, which is one very, very accessible glacier for park visitors. And that probably most visitors who come through come to that national park via Seward uh, hike to the Exit Glacier. And this is a beautiful glacier. And if you know anything about it, you know, it's 
one of the, you know, most glaciers, when you get up close to them, you're blown away by that blue ice, the, sure. that the blue color that glaciers can have. And so Exit Glacier has that very distinct blue color and you can see it from some distance away. So we did hike as close as we could get on this kind of shorter trail that the park has designated to get, get you to kind of an overlook for good pictures. You can also actually take a much longer hike up past the glacier onto the ice field that the glacier comes down from. We did not have time in our schedule oh. to do that much longer hike, which I think would be amazing. You but went the all the way to Alaska was, and you didn't do that hike? Well, because we didn't have all, you know, we only had 10 days, lots of ground to cover, and we had to sort of parcel out what we could do. But it was important for us to see what we could see on foot. The most remarkable thing aside from the beauty of the glacier is just how fast it's retreating and so you it's hard to have the real world you know kind of intrude on a vacation but you can't escape it in the national parks and especially in our business where we're journalists and we're always kind of paying attention to what's affecting these national parks and of course because of climate change there's glacial melt that's happening all over the world and it's very dramatic at exit glacier. And what I find very interesting is that the National Park Service has put up signs with years, with dates, to see where the limit of the glacier is and how much it's retreated. Starting, I think, in the early, the first one might be sometime in the early to mid-19th century, I think, um, was one of the first um, years that they have posted as to where the glacier was and where it is now. And so I think the most recent sign that they put up was for 2010. And so what is that? So that's 12 years ago. I couldn't believe how much this glacier has melted and retreated since 2010. So that I think was very eye-opening for us and my children, again, as an educational opportunity for them to see with their own eyes, the effects of climate change and a warming planet. And I think it's, you know, an interesting way of interpreting for the national park. They don't have to make a big sign. I mean, I think they do have markers talking about climate change, but just by the dates, you can see climate change, how it affects on the land. And so that was one of the most interesting things about that hike as well. Yeah, you're absolutely right about the retreat of Exit Glacier. In fact, there's a new study out that talks specifically about the glaciers in um, Kenai Fjords, and, and most of them sadly are retreating, although there are a couple um, that are actually advancing. And um, a little bit later this month, I, I've got some interviews with the, uh, the researchers um, who did that study. And so it'll be really, really curious to find out what exactly is causing those issues. You know, why, why aren't they all moving in the same direction? Why are some advancing? Why are some retreating? Um, is there a big difference in temperatures? Um, so we're hoping to have uh, some of those researchers on a podcast and uh, we'll, we'll turn it into a story for, for readers on The Traveler in the, the weeks be, to come. That'll be really interesting and I'll be really curious about that. One sort of funny part about learning about um, glacial meltwater is that there's a part of near the glacier where kind of you can, where the water runs off to a little gravel sort of open, looks like a dry stream bed with like rivulets of glacial meltwater kind of cutting through it. So we walked out on that a little bit. It was really fascinating to just see how the meltwater from the glacier just creates these mini canyons through this bed of rocks, you know, it's kind of the stream bed. And so my kids dared each other to put their hand 
in the glacial meltwater because it's freezing and they dared each other to see who could hold their hand there the longest. I'm I'm proud to say that my daughter, the younger one, actually <laughs> lasted longer than my son, the teenager. But again, like these are really cool, they're cool, like sensory, immersive educational opportunities for my kids. It's really fun for them to play that game and also get this really deep understanding of just how cold it is up there and just exactly how, you know, um, glaciers melt and what that feels like. So it was a really fun experience. I really enjoyed it. We're talking today with contributing editor Kim O'Connell, who's just back from a family vacation to Alaska and some of the national parks there. We'll be back in a minute to uh, continue our conversation of her great adventure. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. You know, Kim, you were talking about um, Exit Glacier and, and sticking, you know, your kids sticking their hands in the, the glacier melt as it came off. It, it's so hard to truly convey some of these experiences to somebody who's never been there. I mean, when I was at Glacier Bay with my wife, you know, we took kayaks out and we you know, kayaked up to these tidewater glaciers. I mean, you have to keep about a quarter mile away, I think, because they're actively calving. You know, these huge shelves of ice just breaking off and you you see it first and then the sound catches up with you. Or maybe it's the opposite, the sound. And anyway, it's just a phenomenal experience. And, and to be able to to see that in person, it lives with you for, for the rest of your life, I can imagine. Yeah, it really does. We didn't see any calving glaciers, but that would have been something to behold, I guess, if we would have seen it. But we, we were pretty psyched to get as close as we could. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, this type of experience in Kenai Fjords really generates the question of, you know, if you're planning a national park trip to Alaska, do you focus on just one national park? Because there are so many different fascinating aspects of each and every one of those national parks. Or do you try and do a sampler, which... Um, I'm not sure you did a sampler because you just went to two national parks. I mean, how did you decide where in Alaska to go and what to experience? Well, we knew we only had 10 days, which is just a function of the amount of money we had to spend and my husband's leave and our summer schedule. Um, 
So I think it really depends on the person, but for us, we kind of wanted to strike a balance between seeing a variety of places, but also having enough time to feel somewhat immersive. We didn't want to just do quick, you know, hops from place to place to place where you just get a quick postcard view of a place. But we also knew that, you know, it's hard to get to Alaska. We don't know when or if we'll ever get back. And so we wanted to see more than one national park. We wanted to go to more than one place. So we found that going going in and out of this major city, Anchorage, which also has abundant, interesting things to see, and then also having these two national parks, one more water and glacier oriented, and one more sort of mountain and forest oriented, would give us a little bit of that flavor. And also just a few days in each place to feel a little immersive there. Um, but not so long that, you know, we didn't get a chance to see more of the state. So that's how we sort of found that balance. Um, and we feel pretty satisfied with the choices that we made. I know a lot of people take, you know, cruise ships to Alaska and they're really kind of getting a cruise ship water oriented experience. And then there are others that are interested in flight seeing or backcountry camping and other things. There are so many ways to experience these parks. So I think, you know, anyone who's going to Alaska should, should just think about What's most important to them? Is it most important that you tick off a lot of places or is it more important to kind of stop and sit in one place and really get to know it or some or something in the middle, which is what we did? Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, Rebecca Latson, our contributing photographer here at The Traveler, has been to both uh, Katmai National Park and Preserve and, and Lake Clark National Park and Preserve specifically to see the coastal brown bears and the, the images that she brought back and you know anybody who's spent any time on the internet and likes national parks knows about it, explore.org with the bear cams up at Cap or at Katmai yeah. yeah you have to think well geez I, I, if I'm going to Alaska I want to go to Katmai but then you know if I want to see glaciers, I want to go to Glacier Bay. But then if I want to see, you know, the tallest mountain in North America, I want to go to Denali. So it, it's just a, an overload of decision-making. Well, it would have been absolutely amazing to see those bears in person. But one of the reasons we decided not to go to Katmai, in particular because of our short time, is that because they do have that amazing bear cam that anyone can log on and see live at any moment what's happening at Brooks Falls with those brown bears. So we thought, well, we can say that for another time. And in the meantime, we can satisfy ourselves by going on to the NPS bear cam and check out what those bears are doing because it really is cool to see. And I can't imagine how amazing it is in person. So that'll have to be another trip for us. <laughs> but Yeah, yeah. No, I think every day I, I run across one of the, the images from uh, Katmai and, you know, to see a, a dozen or two dozen huge brown bears in the Brooks River fishing is just like, it blows you away. Yeah, I know those bears get really fat as the as the year goes on too. So I think that would be neat to watch, like depending on what time you could get there to see those super fat bears. Yeah, yeah. Well, and of course they're, they're coming up on the the annual fat bear contest, which kicks off in September. So uh, um, pay attention and, and get your votes in for that. So how did you get from Kenai up to Denali? By a long car ride. I think it's about a four or five hour drive from one place to the other. My family and I are big road trippers. We love to see the world by car to the extent that we can. We drove from Virginia to Theodore Roosevelt National Park in North Dakota once. We drove from Virginia to Yellowstone and Grand Teton another time. So we are no strangers to being in a car because we just love the the changing view of the world that you get when you're on a road trip. And I know that's not for everyone. 
So we knew that we'd have no problem. The kids would have no problem being able to entertain themselves by looking out the window for a five-hour car ride. And especially in Alaska, now the Parks Highway, which is the main highway that connects, you know, Anchorage with these two locations, um, is a stunning highway. Like just to drive along that highway, you are surrounded by mountains and huge vistas. And it, we were there in late July where the, the purple fireweed, which is like sort of the wildflower that's ubiquitous along the park roads or along Alaska's roads was in bloom. So like every square mile, we would pass these incredible vistas that were almost worth getting out of the car to take pictures of themselves. And they weren't national parks. So we got there by by car, rental car. And um, so we actually uh, stayed in a town called Healy. Healy uh, is just north. It's just 15 minutes north of Denali National Park's main entrance there. And so we felt we got an Airbnb there in Healy. And, and so it gave us great access to the national park. And we, again, I think only had two and a half days in Denali, which sounds painfully short, I know. but but again, and we had to make some decisions, but it was an incredible two days. And one thing that was on our side is that, of course, in the summer in Alaska, because it's so far north, it's the land of the midnight sun. The sunset was not until about 1120 every night, p.m., 1120 p.m. every night that we were there. And so, you know, I don't have small children. We could all stay up late. We were in the national park until midnight one night. Um, and it was still light enough. In fact, we saw two moose um, kind of just hanging around this little wetland area of, of the national park around 1130 at night. And so there was a moose jam. And we so we weren't alone. There was a little moose jam. A bunch of cars had pulled over because these two beautiful moose were just hanging out, kind of drinking a little water from this little wetland area, this little pond. And that was like at 1130 p.m. at night. So even though we were only there a few days, like I really felt like we maximized our time there in part because of the the where it is because the there was daylight for so long so um it was pretty amazing one thing about the 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 mountain though is that you probably know that in the summer uh, most park visitors only have a 30 percent chance of seeing mount denali and i'm sure you know that kurt but that's because it's wetter in the summer in alaska and because the mountain is so tall it kind of creates its own weather it kind of traps the clouds around it yeah. And so we only saw Denali, the mountain, on our very last day there. So that was kind of a, a special thing to see, right? Right when we were about to finally head back to Anchorage and wrap up our trip. Yeah, yeah, no, that uh, timing is everything. So were you able to check off the the big five, I think they call it? So the, the, the big five are the, are the top animals that people are looking at. And so what are they? So it's a grizzly, you know, grizzly bear, moose, caribou. Mountain goat, about, mountain goat. What's the fifth big, one? Bighorn big big sheep. Bighorn sheep. So all we saw were moose and caribou. Unfortunately, we did see a grizzly bear in captivity between our <laughs> our two spots. There's a wildlife conservation center um, not too far from Seward that we stopped in, and we got to see a grizzly there. We did not see a bear in the wild, which we were all really hoping for. We had seen a grizzly um, in Yellowstone when we were there some years back, but you know, we don't get, we have black bears on the East coast. Like we don't have grizzlies, brown bears. So we didn't get to see a bear and, and we kept looking for, you know, mountain goats and, you know, sheep that would be higher up in the elevations. And we did not have binoculars with us, which is a failing on our part. If we had, we might have been able to spot 
some of those animals in the distance, but we did see caribou and moose and that was still really amazing for us. And we did carry bear spray, almost hoping like if we carry bear spray on our hikes, then maybe we'll actually come across a bear, but unfortunately it didn't happen. So, Or fortunately, depending on the fortunately. <laughs> did, did you take the, the park bus ride? So we did not do that for, again, for a couple of reasons. Um, if readers don't know or viewers don't know that, um, so the National Park has a 92-mile park road. And again, that's what I was talking about in that they, they limit visitors because they want to keep most of the park as wilderness and wild. So past mile 15, all National Park visitors have to take a bus if they want to continue on to the end of the park road. Now, as you may have heard, um, there was a bad rock slide that happened last year, the Pretty Rocks landslide happened it closed the park road at the 45 mile mark so this year for this entire year visitors are only going to mile post 45 and then turning around so we again had limited time and we thought you can see more of the park by bus obviously but because you know the park the bus wasn't going all the way to the end and we had limited time we decided to just do some hiking spend more time hiking than sitting on a bus so mm-hmm. I think if we'd had more time, we would have taken the park bus because there. I know that there's a greater chance of seeing the big five animals. If you're on the bus, you go deeper into the park's interior. You're farther away from like the visitor center complex and where a lot of people are. And so, so I know that bears and other animals tend to come out a little bit more the deeper you go. But we opted not to. I do recommend that people do it if they do get to Denali and if they have a little bit more time. How are the crowds? I mean, here in the the lower 48, we keep hearing about Yosemite's crowded, Yellowstone's crowded, Grand Teton's crowded, Rocky Mountain's crowded, Acadia's crowded. I could keep going on. Yep. It did not feel that crowded to me. And part of that, even with the way that these two parks kind of funnel visitors into certain areas, it did not feel very crowded. There were plenty of people. So we were never alone on these popular trails. So there were people, but I've been to crowded national parks. These parks did not feel very crowded to me because there is so much space to spread out. So we were in a few of the most popular um, areas. Like there's right at milepost 15, right where you either need to get on the park bus or turn around. There's a wonderful area called um, the Savage River that comes through Denali there. And there's a beautiful series of trails along there. So we did quite a bit of hiking around Savage River. And um, there were plenty of people on the trails, but never did I feel like it was crowded per se. So I guess there was a couple of times we did have to wait for a parking spot just because the parking lots weren't that big. But I wouldn't say that, you know, there was no parking. I mean, I've been to Acadia in the high season where Mm -hmm. you can't get anywhere close to Jordan Pond or some places that are the most popular areas. We could certainly get everywhere we wanted to go, especially if we just exercised a little patience. And um, we, we felt like we had plenty of space to spread out. But it was clear that that these parks are still very popular. And the few other visitors we talked to were all from the lower 48. I mean, it's attracting a lot of people getting on their planes, especially now that COVID has subsided somewhat and, and flying up to Alaska. So we met quite a few people. We, we uh, met a couple from Florida who asked us to take their picture with Mount Denali in the background and, and some other folks. So... Crowds were not too bad. 
Good to hear. Good to hear. We're talking with Kim O'Connell, who just returned from a wonderful trip to uh, Alaska and uh, Kenai Fjords National Park and Denali National Park. We'll be back in a minute to continue our conversation. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to PetreroGroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O Group.com. Since 1986, National Park visitors have turned to the best-selling guidebook, Passport to Your National Parks, to collect fun ink stamps from each of their explorations. Just take your passport book to any National Park Visitor Center or park store and get your free ink stamp with the date and location of your visit. Personalize your passport even more by adding stickers, logging your favorite hiking trails, and mapping your next adventure. You can also show off your love for our national parks with passport-themed apparel and accessories. Best of all, 100% of proceeds from the Passport program support your national parks. Stamp your passport as you capture stories, preserve memories, and discover America's natural and historical treasures. So, Kim, um, I'm sure you came back from Alaska with lots of wonderful memories and, and more than a little desire to go back to Alaska. <laughs> Have you given any thought to, if you had that chance, what parks you would go to and why? Well, I think we touched on it already. I think the first one on my list would be Katmai National Park just to see the bears. Because I I do think it's pretty amazing to watch that many bears in one place feeding and caring for their young. I know that when I go on to the park cams, you can often see mothers and cubs together. The mothers are sort of showing the cubs how to feed the feed on the salmon that are, you know, swimming upstream. And so I think that would be number one on my list. And um, gosh, I mean, almost any of the other ones, like there's so much to see there. Um, we did see some salmon actually, which, you know, was really interesting to see salmon in the wild too, but we did see some salmon that were coming back to their spawning grounds um, in a Creek. And so that was pretty impressive a- again, because it's different fish, different fish species than we see, you know, uh, here right near where we live here in Virginia. And so that was pretty amazing, but I definitely think seeing bears would have to be pretty high on my to-do list. If I, if I made it back to Alaska. Yeah. Yeah. So when you guys were planning this, did you have a a family sit down and come up with a, a pro and a con or a checklist as to, you know, what each of you wanted to individually see and hope to see? So I have to say that my husband, Eric, did most of the planning for this trip, but he knows me and he knows our family very well in terms of our likes and dislikes. And that's why, for instance, that he opted to do sort of a land-based trip versus a cruise. We did take out that half-day cruise and we felt like that was one way to kind of get that boat fixed a little bit without sort of spending our entire trip on a cruise. So he did most of the planning and 
he's sort of nerdy this way. And I'm going to just say he's nerdy on this podcast, but he's sort of nerdy in that he did consult with their whole family. But what he did was create this spreadsheet with our entire itinerary. And he created links to all the different places that we were doing. And he gave like a presentation one day to our family as if he was like in a boardroom laying out our whole itinerary for discussion. (laughs) And it was so fun. Um, You know, we actually uh, presented this trip to our kids on Christmas day last year. And so they had other Christmas presents, but we had sort of the secret vacation box where they were going to find out where we were going this summer for our vacation. And so when they opened it up, they, we had things inside, like we had a t-shirt with a grizzly bear on it. There was a puzzle with, you know, I think like, you know, Western salmon on it or something like there were different things. And the very last present in the box was our plane tickets and a map of Alaska and the Denali National Park brochure. So we sort of enjoyed having this ahead of us for so many months, planning it, getting the kids excited about it, and then actually going on it. And like I said, at the very beginning of our conversation, like to have that much anticipation, you know, I wasn't really worried about it, but I was just wondering if the trip would really live up to the hype that we were creating in our own family about it. And it, and it really did. It really, it really did. These parks are incredibly special places. I know you talked about the state has over a hundred million acres of national parks. Like it's an incredible gift to this country that Alaska National Park Act of 1980 created so many national parks in Alaska. It's like such a special part of our national park system that not as many people get to see. So I feel very lucky that we got to do it and it was pretty awesome. And it's changing rapidly, the landscapes. I mean, you, you know, you mentioned the, the retreat of the Exit Glacier. You mentioned the uh, landslide of Pretty Rocks up at Polychrome Pass. And, you know, those are just two examples of what's going on. And you have to wonder in your mind, what are these places going to look like in 20 years? I mean, is Exit Glacier going to be in view or are you going to have to hike 15 miles to, to get to it? Yeah, I I thought that those thoughts a lot while I was there. And I didn't want to let too much sort of negative thoughts enter, but I couldn't help but think about how much the landscape was changing. The Pretty Rocks landslide, I was reading on the park website about this because, of course, they've done a pretty good job of keeping visitors updated on this landslide. They think that landslide, that sort of subsidence of the land under the park road there, has been happening since the 1930s, slowly so slowly that it didn't obviously compromise their ability to have a road there, to run these buses back and forth on the road for decades, but it accelerated. And it finally got to the point where it just washed out the road and the road is impassable. And so I know that travelers have been covering what's been happening in Yellowstone and all the discussions about how they're going to reroute different parts of the park road through Yellowstone. And maybe they'll have to think about that. And I wonder whether they're going to do the same thing with the park road in Denali, because obviously these things are just accelerating and that's related to climate change. It's because, you know, the snow caps are melting. There's more water kind of running underneath these rocks and these landscapes, and it's clearly causing big changes. So. Yeah. Yeah. In case of uh, the pretty rocks, I believe it's uh the melting of the permafrost is that's um, yeah, that's allowing right. allowing for the slippage, and you know they've got a relatively easy fix at Denali with the Park Road as opposed to Yellowstone. I think they're going to build a, I think it's a 400 foot long bridge to span that that slide area, and uh, I think they're they're pushing quickly on that. And I think um, 
by 2024, if not by um, the end of 2023, it'll it'll be fixed and um, the road will be open again. Um, certainly not the case with Yellowstone, although I had a conversation with uh, Superintendent Camp Shiley last week. Um, for anybody who missed it, it's uh, one of our past podcasts um, last week's. So I think it's episode 182. But they are thinking of taking the road out of the Gardner River Canyon just because it's such a precarious location for a highway between the, the possibility of future flooding as well as the possibility of uh, landslides coming down from those steep canyon walls. And so he, Cam Shawley tells me that, you know, there are some other options that would take the road out of that canyon, be easier to build slash rebuild that access point from Gardner down to Mammoth Hot Springs, and also uh, have less of an environmental impact where they were located and allow them to improve the environment in the Gardner River Canyon, so enhance the environment there. So I think we're, we're seeing that the Park Service is really trying to be as creative as they can be with adaptation, and it gives them, in some instances, somewhat of a blank slate to, to revisit, you know, how are we going to impact the landscape? And it's, it's really interesting to watch. Yeah, you mentioned that we're going to Cape Hatteras, and uh, we do have one other short trip coming up to Cape Hatteras National Seashore. And what I'm very curious to see is that on Hatteras Island, on uh, they've just opened the section of road that they had to reroute around the town of Rodanthe, which is part of like these trio of towns on Hatteras Island, just north of a big chunk of the of Cape Hatteras National Seashore. And they rerouted that road because it kept getting washed out because of erosion and the sea was washing over and, and it was, you know, undermining these houses. I, I know that the traveler covered some of the houses that fell into the, the ocean. So this section of rerouting just opened. There's going to be a lot of, we're going to be seeing a lot of this, you know, figuring out how to change our infrastructure to adapt to a rapidly changing landscape. And then, like you said, if there's ways that they can do that, that also protect the environment or help restore the environment, you know, that that's all to the good. So we'll see what that looks like. Yeah, yeah. Well, Kim, thanks so much for visiting with us today. And um, any parting tips you would have for our listeners in terms of if they're contemplating a trip to Alaska? Well, give yourself some time, I would say. Like, really, this is not a trip that you could just sort of come up with and say, oh, I'm just going to point at one spot in Alaska and I'm going to go there. Like, you have to be prepared for Alaska. The distances are vast. It takes a long time to get there. You can't sort of you know, underestimate the time involved to get from place to place. Also, it's, you know, weather is very changeable there. We were there in the summer, but we had to pack for all different kinds of environments because especially in the summer when a lot of people travel there, we had vast differences in temperature and weather and rain. So it does require quite a lot of advanced planning. And so I would just recommend that people really kind of think in advance about what they want to get out of Alaska trip, think about the conditions there, know that this is very rugged, wild territory. And this is a state that prides itself on its rugged wildness. So, and the national parks are managed in a way to protect that rugged wildness. So you have to really be prepared for that. So just give yourself time, look on the traveler, look on the park service website, try to really um, get as much information as you can. But I guess I would just conclude by saying it's so worth it, though. It's so worth it. So I really do hope that people can find ways to get there. It's such a beautiful place. Yeah. And um, we're really looking forward to the stories that you uh, managed to, to bring to us and the, the readers on The Traveler. And um, 
to live vicariously through your words. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kim. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Um, Next week, Lynn Riddick will be back with an interesting interview with uh, Dr. Will Rice. He's an assistant professor of outdoor recreation and wildlife management at the University of Montana. And he recently did an interesting study into recreation.gov, that uh, portal for reserving campsites and other activities in national parks and across other public lands in the country. A lot of controversy over recreation.gov and and how usable it is or isn't. And um, he has some really interesting insights that I think will raise some uh, concern. And uh, that'll be next week on National Parks Travelers Podcast. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rappencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org.